0: Listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. For my email accounts, so that I could manage my work life, I I had to remember the the passwords for my credit card accounts, so that I could give my creditors their due. But it seemed like every day, I would try to put in a password, what I thought was the right password, into one of my accounts, and the thing would shake and it would come back incorrect password. And then I would type in another password. I was like. Was the first letter, a capital? Did I put a three or a seven at the end of the password? Did I use a number at the end of the password? Ah, it drives me crazy. Couldn't remember the passwords. But then one day, I had a meeting with our uh, our techie elder, uh, Chris Moore. And he told me about this program called LastPass. And the idea of this program, LastPass, was that it, It it was a program that would hold all of the passwords to every account that you needed. And all you had to do was remember one master password to get access to every other account. Now, I was excited about this, and I went home immediately, and I downloaded LastPass. And my whole digital life was revolutionized (laughs) until I went on vacation for a little while. And I came back after vacation, and I was trying to log into my accounts, and I forgot the master password (laughs) to LastPass. I'd forgotten the password that unlocked every other account. At the very beginning of God's story, the Lord gave humanity the LastPass by which they could access every other good gift that the Lord had for us. And that password was faith in the Lord. It was faith in the Lord that gave us access to financial security. It was faith in the Lord that allowed humanity to manage their work life and their responsibilities before God and neighbor. It was faith in the Lord that enabled humanity to give their creator his due. Faith in the Lord was the last pass that gave humanity access to joy, satisfaction in life, meaning and purpose in relationships, social flourishing and every other good gift for which we long. But not long after the Lord gave humanity the last pass of faith in the Lord as the access to every other good thing in life, not long after he gave them the last pass, by Genesis three, they had forgotten it and they lost access to all of these good things, But instead of returning to the Lord, what humanity did is they then started trying to hack into those accounts by other means. Trying to hack our way into meaning, purpose, identity, joy, and flourishing, only to be denied by the incorrect password message that rings in our broken, anxious, and dissatisfied hearts. I want to ask you a question this morning. As we work through our text, I want you to work through this question. Does an honest assessment of your life, your beliefs, your values and practices tell you that you have the last pass? Or do they tell you that you are spending your time trying to hack into the good life? Do you have the last pass of faith in the Lord that gives access to every other account? Or are you trying to hack your way into all those good things through other means? Today we're going to talk about faith by working through Psalm 20. And we're going to work through this passage with two points. In verses 1 through 5 and verse 9, we're going to see what we want. And in verses 6 through 9, we're going to see where we look. Okay? So, our two points for this morning. What we want and where we look. So let's look at our first point, y'all with me? All right, let's look at our first point, what we want. And I want you to look at the text because I'm drawing this point from verses one through five. Now, check it out. The setting of this Psalm is on the eve of a battle. And Psalm 20 is actually a part of the liturgy in which God's people gather together on the eve of battle And they worship and they pray for success in the battle. And their prayers are specifically prayed for their king, okay? And now, if you think about this liturgically, what I'm going to propose to you as you look at this text is that verses 1 through 4 in that worship service were the voice of the priest speaking out the prayer, okay? Verse 5, the congregation joins in. You notice it changes to a plural, We okay and verses 6 through 8 we get the king then lifting up his response in the liturgy and then in verse 9 it's the congregation. So it's there's this antiphonal kind of dialogical back and forth in the liturgy that's going on as I perceive it. Okay and if you look at verses 1 through 5 what you need to notice is that verses 1 through 5 are not just Israel's prayers for their king there's something deeper going on Verses one through five actually reveal to us the longings of every human heart, the longings of every human heart. It gives us a window into the longings of the human heart. These in in the, in the, in the vibe of our opening illustration, these are the accounts to which we're trying to gain access. Check it out. Verse one, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. We all want answers. To the big questions of life. Also, verse one, may the name of the God of Jacob protect you. We all want protection. We all want to be upheld. Verse two, may he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. We all want the support and the help that comes from presence. Verse three, may he remember all your offerings and regard with favor, your burnt sacrifices. We all want our offerings and our work To be remembered by our friends, our family, our co workers, and our bosses. We want to be regarded favorably. Verse 4 May He grant you your heart's desire and fulfill your plans. We all want our heart's desire and the fulfillment of our plans. We want our deepest longings to be met. Verse five, may we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. We all want a good reason for joy and we long to share that joy with others. Verse nine, oh Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. Listen, we all want salvation in the end, don't we? This was a cry for salvation because the people knew that as it went for their king, so it went for them. If the king was defeated, then they were defeated and they were dragged into slavery and service to another ruler. But if their king was victorious, they were victorious and they enjoyed the spoils of that war. Now, these are the desires of every human heart. But the problem is that our modern Secular world, modern secular people, and church folks who are deeply influenced by secular culture go about trying to get these things from the wrong sources, chariots and horses. This is our attempt. Our modern tools are an attempt to hack into the good life. Let's look at our second point, where we look. And I'm drawing this from verses 6 through 9. Look at verses 7 through 8. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. Now, this is, this is the part of the liturgy that I believe is found on the lips of the king. In other words, the king is speaking into the worship service, the things that his people need to remember when he goes off to war. Don't 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 worry for me. I know that the Lord saves his anointed. The king was his anointed. He is confident in the Lord's salvation and his victory, even as he's heading into the battle. But what did chariots represent in that culture? Chariots represented the height of technology and the power of the state. The most powerful expression of political will was martial conquest, conquest in war. That's what the chariots represented most deeply to ancient Near Eastern people. But trust in chariots most likely would not have been an abstract concept to Israel. It wouldn't have been a theoretical idea to the original hearers. Every Israelite would hear this, I think, and be reminded of the Exodus. Do you remember the story of the Exodus? Do you remember it? Anyone alive out there? Okay, good. All right, good, good, good. You can talk to me. Do you remember Exodus? In the crucial point of that narrative, what happens in the story? Is that God says he's setting his people free from slavery in Egypt. Pharaoh wants to keep the people of Israel oppressed and in subjugation to his purposes. The Lord says, I want to set you free so that you can worship me and continue to uphold my mission. Now, check it out. They leave out on the, after the Passover, right? And as they're on their way, all of a sudden... They are pursued by Pharaoh. And how were they pursued by Pharaoh? Uh, By Pharaoh? That was his street name, Pharaoh, like Julio, right? Um, How were they pursued by Pharaoh? In Chariots. chariots. All right, all right, all right, check this out. This is amazing. This is what we call the discipline of biblical theology. It's where you trace a theme and its organic development through the Bible, and you try to understand thematic Connections and motifs that the biblical writers are using in the artistry of writing their works. There's an artistry that's here that's really beautiful and profound if you get it. The Exodus is capturing the truth of our Psalm 20 in story form. All right, this was the defining experience of Israel's national life, and they grounded their lives and governed their entire trajectory out of this story. Now, Pharaoh and the Egyptians, they trusted in their chariots, right? And for a time, listen to me, for a time, it gave them the illusion of an advantage in battle when they backed Israel up against the Red Sea. Israel trusted in the Lord and for a time, it gave them the illusion of a disadvantage when it came to the battle. But the illusions dashed on the rocks of reality at the end of the story. Israel's faith in Yahweh translated into victory and Egypt's faith translated into devastation and death. The text actually mentions chariots and horses in chapter 14 and and the very beginning of 15, 11 times. There's an emphasis here. Look at what their trust in their technology and the power of the state gave them. Look at where it brought them. Look at the limitations of it. And on the flip side, then use that to contrast the glory of faith in the Lord. It's like I've said here before, like when I went shopping for a ring for Vanessa, for an engagement ring, every time I went to understand to, to, to buy a ring and to buy a diamond, what the jeweler would do is they would lay down the black felt, and then they would put the diamond on top of it, and I asked why they did that, and they said, unless you lay the black backdrop, you can't see how the diamond really gleams, and what What we're seeing right here is that all human devices, all human trusts, the height of human technology and political will is like the black felt against which the Lord shines. Faith in the Lord gleams brilliantly when you see how in this story, faith in the Lord stacks up against faith in chariots and horses. Both. Here's the thing. I want you to see this both Israel and Egypt had faith. Israel's faith was in the Lord, Egypt's faith was in chariots and horses, and by faith in the Lord, Israel went through the conflict and came out on the other side of the conflict in joyous celebration. And by their faith in chariots and horses, Egypt went through the conflict, but their story ended in devastation and ruin. Are you hearing what the text is inviting you into that. The text is gesturing back to the Exodus, but it's going to propel us forward in just a bit. The Exodus would have been the vivid illustration that sealed the truth of Psalm 20 for the hearers. These two very different objects of faith resulted in two very different outcomes in the end. And here's the thing, I, in the lead up to the end of the story, The chariots and horses made Egypt feel very secure, very protected and in control of things. Chariots and horses gave Egypt the sense of security and and power in the lead up. On the other hand, in the lead up to the end, I'm sure there were moments of felt insecurity and felt vulnerability and a total feeling of a lack of control for for Israel but the Lord proved to be true security and protection because he's always in control and chariots and horses proved to be false security and could only offer a false sense of control but this dynamic is not just an ancient reality right we have our own modern-day chariots and horses don't we so let's talk about the chariots and horses of secular modernism These are ways that we try to hack into the good life. First, politics. Now, politics is rightly understood as the moral life of a people put on display. How we doing? How are we doing? Not great. Gene Healy in his article, The Cult of the Presidency says this, he says, The chief executive of the United States is no longer a mere constitutional officer charged with faithful execution of the laws. He's a soul nourisher, a hope giver, a living American talisman against hurricanes, terrorism, economic downturns, and spiritual malaise. The modern president is America's shrink, a social worker, our very own national talk show host. He's also the supreme warlord of the earth. This messianic campaign rhetoric merely reflects what the office has evolved into after decades of public clamoring. The vision of the president as national guardian and spiritual redeemer is so ubiquitous, it goes virtually unnoticed. Americans left, right, and other think of the commander in chief as a superhero, responsible for swooping to the rescue when danger strikes. And with great responsibility comes great power. The Harvard political school, the the, the John F Kennedy School of government put it like this, Americans distrust government, but want it to do more and more. You see, why do we in our modern culture want politics to do more and more for us? You know why? Because the, the human heart abhors a vacuum. And once you get rid of the true center of life, the Lord, and you try to keep the gifts without the creator and the giver, then you gotta try and fill in that that huge massive gap and politics is one of the gods of choice for many modern people. That's why our political rhetoric is so heated because people's very sense of salvation hangs on the politics. Democracy Power to the people is actually bad news when it comes to the deepest longings and needs of the human heart. Power to the people, there ain't no power in the people for the deepest things that we really need. Politics is a chariot. Technology, technology. Now, Craig Gay, who is a philosopher and Christian uh, social theorist, said this about technology. He says, recent scientific and technological achievements have been so impressive that science and technology have acquired a kind of intellectual hegemony over our understanding of the world. From a scientific and technological point of view, if God does exist, his existence is largely irrelevant. He has been left to inhabit only that space defined by our ever diminishing scientific knowledge. If we are left with any God at all, It is the benign God of the gaps. You know, the God of the gaps idea is that basically God fills in where scientific knowledge has gaps. But other than that, we don't really need them. Okay. You see, when you have technological means, you always are tempted to believe that there's a technological solution to the problems that you have. Your faith is in technological means of addressing the most exigent problems of life. You see it? The proliferation of devices, hardware, software, along with an ever expanding professional class gives many modern people the sense that nearly every problem we face has some technology or some professional who can provide resolution. You know what's interesting? Many modern people relate to doctors and lawyers and other professionals like priests who they expect to mediate to them the good life. I'm talking in here. Y'all hear what I'm saying? This is the way that we respond. Modern people respond to doctors and lawyers and the professional class of authorities. Mediate to me the good life. That's the expectation. But as we've said before, no matter how many wonderful discoveries, improvements, and impressive feats modernity has produced, it simply does not have sufficient resources to bring us into the good life. which we long it can't ground your identity it can't give you meaning and purpose it can't orient you to an objective moral framework it can't tell it can it can shout into social media that you should do justice but they have no moral framework to tell you why they tell you you ought to do what's right and not what's wrong but they don't have a moral framework to distinguish between right and wrong we're gonna keep going Politics is a chariot. Technology is a chariot. And as I said in the very beginning of our worship service, there are stories that we live into. And another another false hope of modern people is the myth of inevitable progress. The myth of inevitable progress, despite the evidence One of the axioms of modern people is the idea that society inevitably makes progress. That's why there's so much discussion about progressivism in politics. There's an abiding idea that it's a social and political theory that essentially boils down to uh, time heals all wounds. In due time, through our political, scientific, and technological abilities, we will be able to perfect society and achieve justice and equity for all social interests. Do you hear that message in the culture? Do you hear it? Anybody? Okay, good, because it's there. But here's the problem, the underlying presumption of this idea is that humanity is essentially good, our desires are essentially good desires, that we are genuinely people of truth and honesty, that we're not deceivers, that we're not power hungry, that it presumes the essential goodness of humanity morally. And all we need is the right environment to perfect our character and perfect society. But. I'm reminded of Dr. King's letter from Birmingham jail when he wrote, such an attitude stems from a tragic misconception of time, from the strangely irrational notion that there is something in the very flow of time that will inevitably cure all ills. This is what he says, listen. Actually, time itself is neutral. It can be used either destructively or constructively. Let me ask you a question, has time healed racism? No, because it doesn't heal the corrupt human heart of racial pride, partiality, and the disgrace of meritocracy. Has time healed injustices perpetuated against the poor and the marginalized? No, because it doesn't heal greed or selfishness. And at best, it can only provide therapeutic grounds for doing good to other people. You hear what I'm saying? You do good to other people because it makes you feel good. You do good to other people because it helps you to manage your reputation. You do good to other people because that's the kind of identity that you want to project out into the world. It is completely self-referential. These are just a few of our modern chariots and horses. We could name money because who hasn't tried to spend their way out of trouble? (laughs) We can name education, our modern educational industrial complex, because who hasn't tried to think their way out of a problem? Does this mean we abandon the gifts and means of modernity? No, no, you know why? Because chariots and horses were, were wonderful inventions that could be used for hunting and getting meat to feed people. Like there were, there were positive uses for chariots. And in a similar way, there are positive uses for the gifts and means of modernity. What we're saying is that we can use means, but we must not trust means. We trust in God. Now, listen, what we just covered, these are the basic ideas that animate contemporary society and contemporary culture. The assumption is that even if God exists, he's largely irrelevant to the business of life. Put another way, contemporary society and culture so emphasize human potential and human agency and the immediate practical needs of the here and now that we, for the most part, go about our daily lives without any real deep reference to God. It's an interpretation of reality that excludes the reality of God. It's an interpretation of life that is void of the living God. Now, if I could, I would like to to give you the modern secular version of Psalm 20, okay? Here it is. May the advancements of modernity answer you in the day of trouble. May technology protect you. May the government send you help from Washington DC and give you support from Capitol Hill and regard with favor your sacrificial assimilation to the spirit of the age. May the president grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. However, there is nobody to testify to a political or technological salvation, because modern culture spends most of its time trying to fix problems that modern culture created. (laughs) Do you understand the dynamic? Modern people create a thing, then all problems kind of come out of that thing. There are some good things. And then we gotta create more technology to to fix the problems that modernity created. And then that fix needs a fix, right? It's it's infinite regression to a certain degree. And this is all the more the case morally. This is what Peter Berger, sociologist Peter Berger said. He said this, he said, modernity has accomplished many far-reaching transformations but it has not fundamentally changed the finitude, fragility, and mortality of the human condition. What it has accomplished is to seriously weaken those definitions of reality that previously made the human condition easier to bear. We all want answers to the crucial, central questions of life. And we are often turning to education or therapy those answers. We all want protection to be upheld, and we turn to alarms and security cameras and weapons and insurance, don't we? We all want help and support that comes from presence, so we turn to friends and therapists. We all want our offerings and work to be remembered and regarded favorably by our friends and our co-workers and our bosses. We all want our heart's desire and the fulfillment of our plans, don't we? We all want a good reason for joy and we long to share that joy with others. We all want salvation in the end. But here's what I want you to hear me now. If you, if, I want you to lock in with me right here. The, uh, it's only through the gospel that these longings, these, these prayers become our possession. It's only in the gospel that these prayers, these longings become our possession. How? Here's how. In his life and death, Jesus entered into another battle that brought him troubles and suffering, but he brought his troubles to this text. Just like every Psalm of trouble is general enough for all of God's people to bring their particular trouble for encouragement. So Jesus brought his troubles to Psalm 20. He embodied the experience of this psalm as he journeyed to the cross. But in the resurrection, we see the fulfillment of Psalm 20 in Jesus. Do you see what's happening here? In the resurrection, we can see that the Lord answered him in the day of trouble. The Lord protected him and lifted him up. The father sent the help and support of his presence to Christ. The father remembered and favorably regarded his offering and his work. The father gave Jesus the desire of his heart and the fulfillment of his plan. The father gave Christ a good reason for joy and he has shared that joy with his people. The father saved the king And just as Israel's destiny was hitched to their king, so our destiny is hitched to our king. And so it is through union with Christ that all of these good things, the good life, comes to us. All our longings are satisfied in Jesus. Modern secularism makes many promises regarding these good things, but it cannot give a lasting experience or possession of these things. The best you get are fleeting moments, temporary moments that deepen the ache in your soul. Remember, the end of our technology and political will is the same as the end Look at the story of Jesus. Christ's adversaries trusted in their chariots and horses, their political apparatus, their social networks, their power and their resources. And the result, they collapsed and fell. Jesus trusted in the name of the Lord our God. And the result, he rose and stood upright on the other side of the grave. The Lord saved the king, and through union with Christ by faith, we are saved in him. His story becomes our story by faith. The Lord saves not only the king, but all those who are united to the king by faith. We rise and stand upright in Christ. You hear me? And and that, and that takes shape in two different ways. When you first come to faith, you rise and stand upright in justification and in the Lord's continued work in your life, daily refining you and making you into the likeness of Christ. But we will rise ultimately on that day when, as Sister Cheryl prayed, we receive our resurrection bodies and we leave sin behind and we rise to worship and celebrate with the Lord at the great feast of the Lamb. That's the way that you hack into joy. It's in the gospel. You don't have to hack through modern secularism. You have the the last pass. So, application. What do we do? Oh, I got a little time. <laughs> All right. Application. What do we do with this? I want to read you a quote by Augustine, African Church Father Augustine, because I think it's very helpful in thinking about faith and belief. Listen to what Augustine said. He says this. Augustine says that we owe our beliefs to authority. What we accept and act on as true often depends on the integrity and reliability of someone else. And he uses the illustration. This is before DNA testing. He says that a child, when it's born, would not know who its father was unless it trusted its mother's word. You get it? You have to trust somebody in order to establish beliefs in order to lay hold of faith. And what Augustine ultimately does is he shifts the question away from what should I believe or what teachings should I accept to the question of whom should I believe or which persons should I trust? Now in Augustine's view, authority does not impose or coerce, it illuminates free agents to make wise decisions that are grounded in reality. Authority does not coerce, It does not impose, it illuminates free agents to make responsible and wise choices grounded in reality. Now, what do you do with this? What are you leaving with? I want you to do three things. Look within, look around, and look up, okay? Look within, look around, and look up. First thing, look within. Where do you turn in difficulties? When your battles show up, where do you turn? What, what is your instinctual knee-jerk reaction? There you will either find the Lord or chariots and horses. Where are you turning to meet your deepest desires? Is it to some relationship? Is it to your bank account? Is it to your work, chariots and horses? Who are your authorities? Okay, look within. First, you gotta figure out where are you right now? Not where do you wish you were, but where are you? Honestly, look within. Next, look around. Interrogate the authorities that ground your faith, whatever that faith may be. Remember, there's no, there is nobody on this planet who is not a person of faith. You understand that? There is nobody on this planet who is not a person of faith. How can I say that? It's just a question of what you're trusting. If you don't have exhaustive knowledge, you have to be trusting in someone else's word. Okay? Now, interrogate the authorities, recognize their limitations. I wanna say to you that science can tell you about germ theory, but it cannot distinguish right and wrong, nor ground morality and meaning. Okay? So the choice, is who should I believe? Who has the best account of all the data of the world? Now, I want you to compare the two different communities and their stories. You can can either trust the witness of the global and historic church that leads back to the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection. This is the most diverse community in the history of the world, the Christian church. You can either trust a community who, from various cultural vantage points, have come to a shared understanding of the deepest realities of life. Or, or, you could trust a culturally homogeneous group of modern secular elites who currently dominate Western institutions like media and education. Now, in our theological heritage, we talk about something called triperspectivalism. Someone say, triperspectivalism. This is a theory of knowledge that simply says that based upon the fact that God knows all perspectives exhaustively, real and possible, in order for us to think God's thoughts after Him, to look at the world in a way that's closer to the way that God looks at the world, we need different perspectives to enrich and inform our own perspectives. Now, what I'm suggesting to you is that the perspective of the Christian church on the central realities of life. is is multi-perspectival. And you only have this narrow cultural understanding of the world through modern secular theory because it was baked in a homogeneous context. Which one is more trustworthy? Who has a better account of the world? Who has a better account of meaning and purpose and morality and right and wrong and relationships and marriage and work? Where do we get the sensibilities that really connect with our, our heart's deepest longings? We know in our souls, we were made for purpose. There's something We need purpose and meaning. How can purpose and meaning I- emerge from a, a world that's purposeless and by chance? It can't. But this, the Christian story, that connects with what's really real inside and with what we observe in the world, the brokenness and the beauty. So look around. finally look up. I'd be remiss if I didn't tell you to stop trusting in chariots and horses. Put your trust in the Lord. Because at the end of the day, trust in chariots and horses is just another way of trusting yourself. And all through the story of God, the self-salvation project fails. It collapses just like Babel. It collapses. Don't, Don't trust in chariots and horses. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Christianity, Here's the last thing I want to say. If you want to explore what faith in the Lord looks like, you have to understand that you can't really get it from the outside. Now, if you drive around the fancy parts of D.C., like over in Northwest, like 16th Street, and you know all those big historic dying churches, you familiar? If you look at their windows, they have stained glass windows, but they're all dark and gray from the outside. But if you walk into those sanctuaries and you see the light penetrating from the inside, now you can see the beauty of the stained glass windows. The Christian faith is like that. You can't get it from the outside. You gotta get in. You gotta be a part of the Christian church. You gotta participate in community. You gotta rock with the teachings of scripture to try and get inside of it. Then you can make an informed decision because we don't want you to reject the Jesus that ultimately Christians would reject too. Many people are rejecting a God that I too would reject because it's not the God of the Bible. So we're inviting you further in. The bad news is that secular modernity cannot hack into the good life we are longing for. Secular modernity, in terms of its philosophy of life, is like LaCroix. It's how I experience LaCroix. I'm like, it's like, it's like, it's like I'm drinking fizzy water and someone in the other room says, Lime! I don't taste it in my mouth. I'm always disappointed. And then I say, well, it's water. I guess, you know, whatever, right? Modernity is like LaCroix. (laughs) The bad news is that secular modernity cannot enable you to hack into the good life. But the good news is that you don't need a hack. Faith alone in Christ alone is the last pass that gives us access to the good life of holistic flourishing and fullness. You only have to remember this one password to get access to it all faith in the Lord Jesus. So I want to invite you today, trust in the Lord. If you're not exactly sure of all that entails, Grace Mosaic members, raise your hands. Any of these fine people would love to have a conversation with you over coffee or another adult beverage or lunch or come just hang out to rock with you to talk through your questions. We respect questions in here. We want you to shake the cage because we believe that the Christian faith stands up to scrutiny. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.